0: Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, I'm in the studio with Marithi Mutiga. Marithi is our Horn of Africa director, and he's here with me today to kick off the new year with a look ahead at the countries and conflicts we think will be important to watch in 2020. And that, of course, we'll be following closely with you all here on The Horn. Marithi, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Alan, and congratulations. You know, this is becoming an essential lesson for all horn watchers.
0: So 2019 was an eventful year in the horn, and for us who work on the horn, to say the least, which is one of the reasons we, of course, started this podcast. Uh, no place saw greater turmoil than in Sudan, so I wanted to start us off there. Do you think this power-sharing arrangement will hold in 2020? I think in assessing the way forward in
1: Sudan, it's very essential to look back where we've come from. Just a year and a half ago, Omar al-Bashir seemed very firmly in control. Not only that, he was planning to extend his hold on power in 2020. When the protest movement broke out, it seemed relatively small and geographically contained. But very quickly, we really saw the uh, strength and courage of the Sudanese people shine through. They went out to the streets in numbers we had not seen before. The protest movement was very diverse, very peaceful. It brought in not just the urban middle class and the you know, uh, students, as we saw in 2013, but farmers and harders and, and, and traders across the country. What they achieved was remarkable. But what comes next is very tricky to assess. I think what bears um, uh, noting is that The military-civilian transitional arrangement was the only way to break the deadlock. It was an essential way in which to bring everybody along So the military cannot afford to just pull out of the transition because they will then be blamed for the political and economic crisis. The civilians also have an interest in this going ahead, partly because it offers a real opportunity for substantial reform. In 2020, I expect this will hold. What will be critical to watch will be whether the military at the end of 2020 will begin to make arrangements to hand over power to the civilians as they are scheduled to do in 2021.
0: Yeah, as I, as I look back, and as I'm sure you do too, it's, it's remarkable where we felt we were mid-2019 in terms of just how dire the situation uh, seemed and how, you know, the prospect of a collapse in Sudan, the sort of regional uh, repercussions uh, that, that would have. How, how critical do you think is it given all that, that the U.S. lift the sanctions they still have on Sudan?
1: It's an important point. Of course, Sudan matters a great deal. It's a country that's sandwiched between Egypt and Ethiopia, two of the three most populous countries um, in the region. It neighbors all these trouble spots, uh, including South Sudan, but now Libya in particular. It's the geographic connector between the Red Sea, the north of Africa, and the horn of Africa it is a country that matters a great deal when you look at the question of external support for the transitional process, what's very important to bear in mind is that there are contrasting expectations on both sides of the transition. So what do the civilians expect um, from the Hamdok administration? They would like them to revive a battered economy, to deliver justice for those killed during the protest movement, to put in a new constitution, a more progressive one, and broadly to also push forward the Peace process uh, with the armed groups. That's a daunting set of challenges. The military is only expected not to interfere in the transition and to deliver security uh, for the people. So you can see that the Hamdok administration really does require urgent, large-scale financial and political support. This might come potentially when there's a donor conference tentatively scheduled for April, but the U.S. needs to really appreciate what uh, a, a delicate transition this is. The sooner they offer political support for the civilian administration, the better the chances are that they will survive. I think with the state sponsor of terrorism designation, it's unfortunate that the U.S. has not really quite grasped how important it is not to consider it a bureaucratic, but a political process. It's one where the sooner you offer support to the Hamdok administration, the better. And lifting the SST would be a symbolic uh, an important victory for them.
0: Ethiopia nearly rivals Sudan, I would say, for the speed of its political transition at the moment. And in Ethiopia, we're, of course, talking about another country uh, in the middle of the Horn of Africa, who's uh, who's really an anchor of stability, but whose, uh, you know, internal turmoil could really have drastic effects outside of its, its own borders. Will elections take place in 2020, as Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has promised?
1: For sure, the change in Ethiopia has unfolded at a dizzying pace. Abiy has swept into power, delivered uh, some sort of peace deal with Eritrea. He's promoted women to critical positions, leading very important institutions. He's promised to revive the economy. He's continued to release political prisoners, welcomed back armed groups. And now he's um, undertaking to deliver a multi-party election. I think the problem when there's such sudden change in a country that was so used to be governed from the centre and in a fairly authoritarian manner, there will be challenges. So over the past two years we've seen intercommunal conflict proliferate. We've seen um, uh, ethno-nationalist parties become very ascendant. Now we see in the north, for example, very powerful autonomous federal units that command their own security forces locked in dangerous border standoffs. Now, into this mix, you're about to add an election. It's easy to see why both sides would like the election to uh, 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 would, would have different views on the election. The Abbey side demands an election for reasons of legitimacy. There is no clear way in which you can postpone an election in the Ethiopian constitution. But at the same time, those that worry that this is a very potentially delicate moment and that an election will add to an already very inflamed situation also have a good um, a good argument my best guess is that potentially the election will go ahead it will only be postponed if the security situation deteriorates very sharply and i think what's critical is that Everybody offers support to the Electoral Commission for it to deliver an election that seems uh, credible, but above all else. Abi, who's already been feted with a Nobel Peace Prize, which implies a capacity to engage in dialogue, really needs to reach out to his rivals and reach some sort of accommodation, especially about the future of various contentious issues, none of which is more so than the system of ethnic federalism in the country.
0: Much was made of Abiy's rapprochement with Eritrea, um, which, of course, was part of what got him the the, the, the Nobel Peace Prize, as you mentioned. Um, but then momentum with that Ethiopia-Eritrea deal appears to have stalled a little bit. Uh, why does it matter if this is truly a new chapter between Ethiopia and Eritrea? in terms of regional peace and regional uh, strategic alignments as we're looking forward into the future?
1: It's probably not too surprising that that peace deal stalled. I remember a diplomat that knows the Eritrean regime very well telling the Djiboutians, don't worry too much, you know, there's all this talk that suddenly uh, Eritrean ports will be open to trade from Ethiopia, that Djibouti will suddenly find itself becoming irrelevant. In fact, his best guess was that the regime in Eritrea focuses more on security than on anything else. Securing its own hold on power, securing its uh, its capacity to control its people and unfortunately he was proven right. Very quickly the Eritreans closed the border when they saw that they could not control the, the passage of people out of the country. I'm afraid this is one where I can say with a bit of confidence that we probably won't see too much progress unless there is some change um, in the posture of the Eritreans unless um, uh, uh, there is perhaps a better relationship between Abiy and the Tigray region which borders the Eritrea and which is very uh, critical considering the former dominance of the Tigray People's Liberation Front in the Ethiopian government. I don't think you'll see too much progress.
0: So we have such rapid change in Sudan and Ethiopia where i think this will be an incredibly critical year for both of those countries with the transitions uh, that they're going through and then we have Somalia where of course the insurgency and counterinsurgency um with al shabaab has been continuing now for over a decade and of course we saw a massive truck bomb in Mogadishu in December and already in this new year we have You know, quite a daring attack from the militant group on what was a U.S. base uh, in the coast of Kenya. Is there any hope that 2020 will bring us any closer to a political settlement there that can start to end some of this ongoing violence?
1: That's a really important question. The attack in Lamu, for example, was very daring, but not entirely surprising. It was the very first time Al-Shabaab was able to breach a foreign base uh, abroad. Um, And and then we saw the horrific uh, truck bomb in in Somalia that cut down the lives of so many young people, including 16 fresh graduates um, from a university. I think... Al-Shabaab has been signaling that it would go after American targets for some time. The air campaign against Al-Shabaab has forced them to adapt their ways. They've not been able to attack and uh, mass, for example, foreign bases um, within Somalia. But as ever, Al-Shabaab has adapted, of course, not for the first time. They've become much more of an underground insurgency. And through co-option and, and, and coercion, they're able to operate with relative impunity in Mogadishu. For example, they've staged multiple Uh, Bombings and in Kenya, they seem to be applying an insurgency uh, strategy. Al Shabaab attacks are obviously aimed at different audiences, perhaps none more important than the the domestic one. They aim to show the importance of the uh, the governing authorities. Uh, Abroad, they aim to force a rethink in the AMISOM deployment. And now they aim also to try and inflict pain on the Americans, possibly to force them to reconsider their campaign. I think the key issue is... You can't defeat Al-Shabaab as long as there's no political settlement in Somalia. Unfortunately, that seems very far off today. You have 20,000 troops on the ground. You have 500 uh, uh, roughly American uh, troops also fighting the battle. Um, but you don't have any decision by the Somali uh, national authorities themselves to come together, particularly between Mogadishu and the federal member states, which are these regional governments that enjoy a degree of autonomy to combat Al-Shabaab together. In 2017 in London, both sides agreed that they would form a united army 18,000 strong, including representation from all the federal member states. That has never been done. What we see today is the elites locked in this endless stalemate between Mogadishu and the federal member states that focuses not on the counterinsurgency, but on capturing power. And as Crisis Group argued in its its landmark report on jihadism um, called um, uh, Exploiting Disorder, you have three conditions in which militant groups can thrive with relative strength. You need a prolonged war, you need um, a, a governance vacuum or, or state failure, and you need geopolitical upheaval. Unfortunately for the people of Somalia, the country ticks all three boxes as long as you can't resolve the internal political stasis between uh, the various actors, you are unlikely to be able to defeat Al-Shabaab. And unfortunately, in 2020, we don't see the elites coming any anywhere close to bridging that.
0: Is there any hope that 2020 will bring us any closer to a political settlement uh, to finally end this violence? I, I think it's critical that Somalia's external partners stop acting
1: as if this Uh, battle can be won simply by not um, uh, looking for different ways other than kinetic methods. Two things are critical. One is the question of should frontline states such as Ethiopia and Kenya contribute troops as that sometimes is used by al-Shabaab to inflame public opinion against the, the state authorities. But secondly and critically is Al-Shabaab a monolith? Are there elements of of that movement that might be open to potentially um, uh, agreeing to open lines of communication between them uh, and the authorities? And is there a political settlement to be reached not with the whole of Al-Shabaab but potentially with those that have more nationalist aspirations rather than the ones that are committed to violent jihad? These are very difficult questions. I don't raise them uh, casually because know that opinions are very inflamed and obviously Al-Shabaab has waged a terrible um, a toll on the people of Somalia in particular. But unfortunately, it's very important that people open their minds to understand that a military solution is very far off.
0: And then, of course, we have South Sudan, which we haven't even touched on yet, which speaks to all that's happening in in, <laughs> in the Horn region. Uh, so, you know, the civil war there could be drawing to a close. And as much as for the past year now, the two main uh, warring parties have have mostly not fought and have held a ceasefire. Um, and we'll be, of course, watching closely as crisis group if they do form a unity government in February or soon thereafter, um as they promised in in the current peace deal um do we see any hope from the regional mediators uh that they will you know really help finally weigh in uh to end South Sudan's long civil war
1: you are right on that without question. Surprisingly, perhaps South Sudan is one of the places in the region where we see the glass being half full. Um, since the deal was signed in September 2018 and again extended in November uh, 2019, it's encouraging that the principal parties have stopped fighting. Um, I think going forward, I see two reasons for hope and some reasons to despair a little. I, I think it's, 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 it's encouraging that the parties are are talking to each other. Just a few days ago, we saw uh, Salva Kiir agree to send a delegation to see uh, the opposition um, leaders that were not involved in the peace deal. I think it's encouraging. Uh, Secondly, that there is so much external support for a peace deal, particularly from the Pope and other uh, clergy and and leaders of of, of various denominations. And then um, I think... It might be possible that you get forward momentum from any peace deal in Sudan pouring down to South Sudan to the extent that if you have a peace deal with the armed groups, it will turn the focus firmly on Juba and the need for a deal there. I think the reasons to be sceptical and that flows to your question is that we don't really see stepped up regional support for the peace process. That is a real problem. The dysfunction within the regional bloc, IGAD, is very disturbing. We don't see that really changing. Um, But also, uh, more broadly, unfortunately, even though the parties may form a unity government, their commitment to ultimately completely ending hostilities leads one to really question how sustainable whatever unity government they form will be. And we really have to question what the future holds.
0: So we have so much else to discuss, but unfortunately limited time. Um, One of the other big issues, though, that I really wanted to uh, talk about and also um, it tends to uh, surround a lot of the other regional issues here um, in terms of uh, power dynamics um, and, and regional alignments is the dispute over the Nile waters uh, between uh, Egypt and, and Ethiopia. I'm wondering where do things stand currently and what are we really watching for heading forward?
1: So we've had a repeated rounds. Uh, we've had repeated rounds of talks between um, the leaders in Cairo, in Addis Ababa, but also in Khartoum, which occupies a critical place in the dispute. But unfortunately, we see a real stalemate at the moment. Um, This is a dispute where the stakes are very high, where all sides have much to gain or lose but it's it's unfortunate that everybody approaches it from a hyper-nationalist perspective and sees it as a zero-sum game. This is a game, this is a dispute involving a resource that could potentially be shared if all sides were to back down somewhat. So for example Ethiopia could offer some concessions about the length of the uh, of the filling period and and how to fill the the dam during droughts and then the egyptians could also be a bit more pragmatic and accept that they can no longer just monopolize the resources from the Nile. All sides could share electricity. Um, Sudan could benefit from expanded agricultural resources, while Ethiopia could power its economy with the resulting um, electricity generation. Unfortunately, we see the dispute deteriorating. The rhetoric is getting harsher. And it's open to question whether all sides will agree to the concessions that are necessary. The only thing that's helpful when it comes to that dispute is that they have run out of time. So they have bought and kicked the ball down to the long grass for nearly 10 years. Now it's time to make hard decisions.
0: Now, there's several other regional developments we'll, of course, at Crisis Group will be following quite closely throughout the year. Uh, EGAD, uh, as you mentioned, has a new chair in Sudan as the new chair. Um And uh, we also have Kenya and Somalia uh, remaining still at bitter odds, largely over their maritime dispute, which we've talked about on this podcast previously. The region continues to find itself um, as a theater of power competition between the Gulf countries. What are those trends that you think in particular are worth uh, stressing and and highlighting in terms of how they will possibly affect the the stability and peace in in the Horn uh, in 2020? I
1: think you're right to highlight those. Uh, It will be very interesting to see whether the International Court of Justice will render a decision on the Kenya-Somalia maritime dispute, as you highlighted on this podcast, that might have implications for a lot of other countries um, on the continental shelf uh, across the region. I think that will be really important to to watch. My guess would be that they might continue to buy time and to seek uh, a political solution among various actors. But then, of course, that will be very tricky in an election year in Somalia. Um, Gulf involvement in the region will be extremely uh, important to watch, especially, again, in the context of the continued disputes uh, within Somalia. I would say, in addition to the igad uh, question, is big power competition within the region. So we see that both Beijing and D.C. are becoming more aggressive, very assertive in trying to pull the various big countries, especially in the region, to their side. And I think it bears watching to see how that unfolds.
0: And any other key stories that might be flying under the surface that we should be paying attention to? A
1: grim one in Tanzania. Unfortunately, we've seen the most dramatic dish- deterioration in a political environment that I've seen uh, in the region for a long time the president there is up for re-election he makes no secret that the election will be essentially um, a shambles, he has warned electoral commission officials that they get their pay from the authorities and so they cannot declare for the opposition, the opposition boycotted um, uh, recent local elections he has jailed journalists made it very difficult for the opposition to hold rallies constrained the media unfortunately Tanzania which once seemed like a good news story might be our grim news story for the year
0: Well, we can promise uh, that we'll be here to wade through it all um, with all of you, whatever happens here on the Horn. Marithi, great to have you on, and good luck with what will be, I'm sure, another very busy year for you and for all of us in the Horn of Africa team.
1: Thanks, and good luck with the podcast. You can be sure you won't run out of material.
0: Thanks, Marithi, and we will be back in two weeks as usual to start digging into these issues along with many others. Thanks for all your support so far. You can follow Crisis Group on Twitter at Crisis Group and read our reports at crisisgroup.org. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell. I'm always happy to hear from you all, and you can reach out to me on Twitter at Alan Boswell. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Mae Francis.